So this fall, we've been working our way through uh, the Nicene Creed. And if you've been around for a while, you, you remember us telling you almost every single week that the Nicene Creed is one of the earliest uh, church documents where church fathers gathered together in an effort to succinctly and accurately summarize the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. That in the face of the spreading gospel and the growing church across nations and across um, ethnic lines and different tribes and different tongues, uh, they needed the, 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 the essential doctrines of the Christian faith synthesized in an easy way that the church could, could refute heresy and the church could use this to help disciple new believers. As the Bible wasn't even translated into some of the languages that were spoken and things were communicated orally, what were the things that we needed to know, things we needed to communicate? How could we teach and how could we grow strong? And one of the early councils of the church in Nicaea, in the face of a, of a heresy that we've talked about and preached about early on, gathered together and they penned the Nicaean Creed. The Nicene Creed is one of the most enduring statements of the Christian faith, of the essentials of the Christian faith, of what we often call the closed-hand doctrines of the Christian faith, those things that we find in a closed hand that we must believe in as followers of Christ, things that are not up for negotiation, things that are essential to our faith over and against things that we would say are in an open hand, things that we can disagree upon, things that we can debate upon, but still find ourselves together as one family in Christ still followers of Christ, but debatable. Those are open-handed issues. The Nicene Creed majors on the closed-handed issues. And so far, as we've gone through the Nicene Creed, we've tried to take it proposition by proposition or confession by confession. We've seen the confession of the one true God. We've talked about the Trinity, one God who has existed eternally in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've talked about who God the Father is in his person, in his character, and his work. We spend a bulk of our time, as the creed does, talking about who God the Son is, who Jesus Christ is, his person, his work. We've talked about the need for his work, our sin. We've talked about salvation. We've talked about his righteousness imputed to us by faith. We've talked about who he is and what he has done, why we treasure him, and what's important to understand about him. We've talked about who God the Holy Spirit is. We did this last week, his person and, and his work. And this morning, we're going to go into the next I believe statement in the creed. The next statement says, we are corporately believing into. Remember, that's what I believe means. It was an active verb. I am believing into. I am placing my faith in. I am leaning all of my hope and all of my confidence into. The next I believe statement in the church is somewhat surprising, or the creed is somewhat surprising because it has to do with the church. And so I'll ask you this as we get started. If you were to sit down and summarize for yourself the closed-handed issues of the faith, If you were to sit down and and succinctly try to summarize what was essential to believe as a follower of Christ, how many of you would actually have a statement about the church in your creed? How many of you would actually have a statement about the church in your personal creed? If we're really honest, there wouldn't be very many of us that would do that. And, And there's a variety of reasons why that's the case. It could be cultural. You know, in our day and in our time, because of sociological changes and philosophical changes that have worked their way through the culture that we find ourselves in, the majority of us in the 21st century American church tend to privatize our faith. It tends to be an individual experience with Jesus. What really matters is our individual personal forgiveness of sins, redemption by the work and person of Jesus Christ, and our hope of spending eternally, personally, with God forever in heaven. That tends to be the way that we think about our faith, over and against the way the scriptures and the church fathers tend to think about our faith. We tend to think about it expressing our our individual experience. 
The church is a part of that, but it's not necessarily essential to our experience. But at that very point, we, we tend to separate ourselves in, in a historical understanding of how the scriptures in the early church thought about our faith. But the source of our omission of the church from our personal creed, uh, it may be more simple than cultural factors. I mean, it may actually be more simple than that. I mean, I'll actually have to admit that the word church itself often produces confusion and misunderstanding and when we read the scriptures. In fact, I'm going to read you some scriptures about the church, and they're not going to come up on the screen. I just want you to listen, and I'm just going to explain to you where some of this confusion may come from and why when we write our personal creed, when we talk about close-handed issues, we, we may not actually include one about the church. In Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, Paul says this. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So sometimes when the Bible talks about the church, he's talking about a group of believers that are gathered in a house. And then if you were to flip over to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, it says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So the church is believers that were in a house, and now the church is all the believers in a particular city. And then if you were to go back to Acts 9, you could read in verse 31, it says this, so the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. So the church is a group of believers in a house, the church is a group of believers in a given city, and the church is also all of the believers in a particular area. It's as if Luke is talking here and, and greeting all of the believers in Virginia, Washington, D.C., and West Virginia. And then if you were to look in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, starting like this, Paul would say this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So just right there, just that collection of scriptures, the church, the word the church is used to refer to a group of believers in a house, the church is all the believers in a city, the church is all the believers in a region, and then Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 will use this word to allude to all the believers everywhere over all of time. Everyone who has all ever placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus. That's what you sometimes hear called or referred to as the invisible church, the universal church. Everyone for all time who ever believed in the person and work of Jesus compromises the invisible or the universal church. And so if that particular word is used in a number of ways that we get confused about when we talk about the church being essential and, and what really it is, what's its nature, what's its purpose, then if we were to just look at the metaphors the Bible uses for the church, we could get even more confused. At times, it, the Bible talks about and describes the church as a family with God as our father and fellow believers as brothers and sisters. Other times, it talks about the church and it uses the image of a bride we're the bride of Christ and he's the bridegroom and other times it talks about being grafted into a vine. There's all these different images the Bible will use to describe the church and so I'll be really honest that you can get confused. It's actually a little more complex than this is the place where I go to sing and to hear the Bible preached which oftentimes because of the way our English translates particular words we tend to take the word church and apply it to the place where God's people gather. And so you can talk about a church building, when really nowhere in the scriptures is the word church ever used to refer to a particular place. It's talking about the people that are actually gathered in a place. So it can be in a house, 
or it can be in a city, or it can be in a region, or it can be talking about all the people over all of time and space and history who have ever trusted in Jesus. So if you were to write your particular creed, if you were to summarize the closed-handed issues of the Christian faith for yourself, your omission may not be simply because you're self-centered or individualistic. It could just be because you're confused. Because the word itself can produce confusion. And when that happens, when that confusion is present, when we really don't know who we are, and because we really don't know who we are, we don't really know what we're about. We don't know what our purpose is. We don't know what our identity is, and so we don't know what our purpose is. The idea of the church can become a take-it-or-leave-it issue. It can be either here nor there. It's like, in a sense, we suffer from some sort of amnesia which I'll have to be really honest, scares the daylights out of me. I am personally frightened of a couple of things. I am frightened of drowning. A lot of you probably share that. I have a hard time watching it on television and watching it in movies when someone drowns. It completely wigs me out. I generally have to get up and leave the room. It makes my skin crawl. I have this crazy, insane fear of drowning. It's one of the worst dreams. I know when anxiety is getting high. It's not just because I show up in school naked or forgot that I took a class and I'm anxious about something. I'll be drowning right below the surface of the water, but not able to actually get my head up to get water. Freaks me out. But along with that, I have this really, really innate fear of amnesia. And I, I, I can't really express with words in a way that does any real justice to how much I actually truly, deeply in my soul love my wife and I love my kids. My, my particular words just don't do it justice. I don't even know that I have a word that can do it justice. And so the thought of actually waking up, of opening up my eyes, and seeing my wife and seeing my kids and having no visceral connection to who they are. I mean, they are as personal to me as that brick right there on the wall. No idea of who they are and no idea of who I am. Of having no knowledge of myself and no knowledge of these people. And with no knowledge of who I am and who the people around me are, I have no knowledge of what it is I'm doing here. Just emptiness. It absolutely freaks me out. But if we're honest, when we think about the church at large, we tend to suffer from a very similar type of amnesia. In a way, we know the church is there. I think we think we're supposed to feel a certain way about it. We're supposed to think certain things of it, but it's just not there. And because we don't know who the church is. We don't have any sense of the church's identity and we don't have any sense of the church's purpose. We suffer from this particular type of amnesia as it is about the church. The church actually becomes a give or take issue. It becomes something that's neither here nor there. That's not the way it is in the scriptures. It's not the way it was with the early church fathers. But honestly, if if we were to really be honest about it, most of us just don't really care And I think it's because we've got an amnesia. We've forgotten who the church is. We've forgotten what the purpose of the church is. So enter the Nicene Creed. The creed was written to help followers of Christ understand the essential truths of the faith. For centuries, even to this day in certain church traditions, it's read corporately by God's people. 
It's a public confession. Every single week they get together. They don't only sing great songs about the person and work of Christ. They don't only read the scriptures and preach the scriptures, but they take the historic creeds that summarize the faith. And every single week together, they confess faith and belief in these things. And as they did that, it was, in a sense, it's like my wife and my kids, who if I had amnesia, would show up every single day faithfully with pictures, with video, with audio, showing me over and over and over who I am, what I was about, what I loved, why I loved it, hoping that something would jog something in my brain, that something would come alive in my mind and in my heart. And what was lost may again be found and be reconnected. This is what the creed has done for centuries in the church. And to this day in this city, you'll find churches that recite it every single week. And I kind of like that because that's one of the essential roles of the creed. And this particular week, this particular confession, this particular issue, this is what the creed says. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that cleared it up, right? Right? Your personal amnesia as to the nature and the identity of the church and who we are and what we're about, that cleared it up, right? We can be done. You're one holy Catholic apostolic church, you're, you're good now, right? That helped answer all the questions. The fire is ignited, the connection is made. The love exists. It's all there. All right, now, open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. Excuse me, go to 1 Peter. Let's go to 1 Peter. If the creed didn't help you, we're going to trust the word of God will. And in a particular passage in the letter to 1 Peter, we're going to see some of these markers of the church that the creed is talking about. And we're going to trust that God's Holy Spirit would make it alive to your heart. First Peter. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Now, it may not come up on the screen, but I just want you to see the context of where we're going. We're going to spend our time in chapter 2. But Peter started his letter this way. He said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, listen to this. Who's he writing to? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So there are believers, there are followers of Christ who were in Jerusalem and And due to the persecution that went on in Jerusalem in this particular time, people had to disperse to different regions and cities away from Jerusalem in in an effort to to save their lives. So Peter's writing a letter to all these believers who are in different places, who have left their homes, who are in faraway lands, who are are in a a land that was not their home. And he's writing a letter to all those people in Pontus and in Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he's writing to followers of Christ that are scattered throughout a region. So he's talking to more than just one particular expression of the church, one particular expression called a local church. And in writing this letter, the Holy Spirit was inspiring Peter to write to a particular people in a particular time, going through a particular circumstance. So there was an audience. Peter intended that this letter would go to all of these regions and that people who would enter these regions would find where the followers of Christ were gathering and they would read this letter, this letter from Peter, the great leader in Jerusalem, this letter that the Holy Spirit had inspired and that the Holy Spirit has now preserved in our scriptures. It would be read wherever followers of Christ were gathered and then it would be circular. It would go to the next place. It would go to the next region. It would go to the next city and people would find where the followers of Christ were gathering and they would read this letter. 
So Peter wasn't writing a letter to a particular group of believers in a particular local church in a particular city. He's writing to the church, to the followers of Christ in a particular group of regions. And so in in just this expression, just this little bit, you begin to understand a little bit of what the creed is talking about when it talks about believing in one and then Catholic church. It's just giving reference to the fact that the church of God, the people of God, are one in their faith in Christ. God's church is universal, and all who have ever believed in the person and work of Christ across time and across history, regardless of tribe, tongue, nation, education, background, ethnicity, gender, it doesn't matter. If you placed your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are part of the church of God. That is, there's one church, and it's Catholic in nature. It's universal. That's what that word means. It means it's not tribalistic. It's not just contained into one people or one style or one ethnicity or one subgroup. It's universal. It's Catholic. And Peter's writing to the church in a region. The Holy Spirit inspired that letter and the Holy Spirit preserved that letter. So like the Apostle Paul said, all of Scripture is profitable for us even right now for encouragement, for exhortation, for correction, for training in righteousness. So now the local church here in Richmond, Virginia at Redemption Hill can profit from what Peter wrote to the church in a particular region because God's church is one. It's one and it's Catholic in makeup. It's universal. That's what the creed is emphasizing in those two particular words, one and Catholic. But Peter's gonna tell us a little bit more specific, give us a little more specifics about the identity of the church the nature of the church and the purpose of the church in chapter two. So flip over to chapter two. We'll start in verse nine and 10. The the rest of chapter one and beginning of chapter two, Peter is unpacking the realities of the gospel, the gospel indicatives, the truth of the gospel of the message, and then what that means for how we live our life, how we actually live that out, what it calls us to. And in verses nine and 10, chapter two, he says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the first thing that we learn about the church here and what Peter is saying to this group of believers scattered throughout a collection of regions is that the identity and the nature of the church is a people possessed by God. That is the fundamental character and nature of the church. It's a people possessed by God. Who we are is a people that were created by God for God. And so the church does not have a right to exist for itself or to serve ourselves or to even serve other people first. The church exists for God, created by God, and is possessed by God. And so straight away, Peter just undercuts all of the self-centered and individualistic tendencies we have when we think about the church what the church is for, who the church serves. Is it for the believers or is it for others? Is it an other-focused people or is it a believer-focused people? Peter says it's a God-focused people, created by God and possessed by God. And the church exists for God. And God himself, by his Holy Spirit, we talked about last week, abides in his people and empowers his people to be who he's called them to be and to do what he called them to do. 
This is the fundamental characteristic and nature of the church. It's a people possessed for God, by God. And I love it when you just read the text when he talks about who these people were. I mean, who were the people and who are the people that are now possessed by God? Peter said, once you, you were not a people, you had not received mercy. But now you're God's people. Now you're people who have received mercy. I mean, what's made those of us who are part of God's people, who are part of the church? What's, what has God done to make us part of his people? What has God done so that he could show mercy to those of us who before he had not tasted, we had not tasted of his mercy? What actually happened to make us God's people? If you just flip back a page, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, listen to how Peter describes how God made his people and possessed his people. Peter's talking again to the church. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So prior to God making you a people and extending his mercy to you, every single last one of us is caught up in futile ways of thinking and futile ways of living that have been handed down to us generation after generation, culturally after culturally. And Peter said we've been ransomed from those things, so we were actually held hostage by those things. We couldn't get out of them. We couldn't just change our pattern of thinking and our desire of heart to want God and to serve God for who he was. We were possessed by these futile ways of thinking. And he said, you were ransomed from those things, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You couldn't buy your way to God. You couldn't buy your way out of your wrong thinking and your wrong desires. You couldn't even act your way out of them. You couldn't even do enough religious things and moral things and right things to make up for those things so that you could earn your way out of those futile ways. You weren't ransomed by precious things like gold or silver or by good behavior. He said, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who through him are now believers in God. Before you were, you were stuck in futile ways of thinking, placing your hope and your faith and your desire in things that can never satisfy. So, but now you're believers in God, who raised him, talking about Jesus from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So every single last one of us apart from Jesus is trapped in futile ways of thinking and living and every single last one of us apart from the person and work of Jesus, the Bible says in other places are spiritually dead. Our hearts are like stone. The truths of the person and work of Christ bounce off our hearts, we said last week, like bullets off of rocks. But through Jesus, but through Jesus, those who were dead, those who were defiled, are now brought near to God, now made alive to God, now cleansed by God, now washed by God. Through faith, we are brought near to God, not because our faith is so strong. And this is what tends to happen. We get so individualistic, again, about our faith and salvation, and we tend to preach the good news of the gospel, of the person and work of Jesus, and the necessity of faith, of believing in his work for the forgiveness of sins, and then we tend to put all of our hope and faith in our ability to believe. Peter's saying it's not because your faith is so strong that you were caught up in futile ways and you were ransomed because your faith was strong. 
said, no, you were ransomed from your futile ways of thinking, your deadness of heart, your hardness of heart, not by your faith because it was so strong, but because the blood of Christ was so powerful. Because the blood of Christ was so complete and so sufficient and so powerful. The blood of Christ is precious because it guarantees that God's righteous and just wrath that we have talked about in the weeks past is forever turned away from those who place their faith in the person and work of his son Jesus. So Peter rightly calls the blood precious. And so for those whose faith is placed in this precious blood of Jesus, who are daily believing in Jesus for their understanding of who they are, for their sense of identity and purpose, who are daily placing their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Peter is saying, you are now part of God's people. God has now taken possession of you. You have now received and tasted of the mercy of God himself. And by virtue of being a God-possessed people, God has now taken you away from those futile ways of thinking. He's ransomed you. He's taken you out of those things. He has called you out of that and to himself. By virtue of his possession, we are a called out people. This is essentially what the word in the Greek that we use for church means. It means an assembly. It means a called out people, a people set apart. This is essentially what we're talking about when we talk about the church. As followers of Christ, you and I have been possessed by God. And we have been set apart by God and for God. And by virtue of that very redemption and that very possession. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Because he did that and because of his work, we can be forgiven of our sins. We rightly celebrate that. We rightly celebrate that good news. But Jesus Christ also lived the life that we were created to live. Theologians talk about Jesus' passive obedience. That in his life, he worshiped God, served God, loved God, was satisfied in God in every single way that you and I were created to do but failed to do. And that not only do we receive the forgiveness of our sins when we place our faith in his person and work because he died in our place, but we are given the very righteousness that he earned because of the life that he lived. And because we have been possessed by God and forgiven of our sins and given that righteousness righteousness that comes from God. The Bible talks about the fact that you and I, who are a part of the people of God, are now holy. We're a holy people, a holy called out people. We are a people who are reckoned righteous or holy by the virtue of Jesus' righteousness and holiness that's given to us. So we're not just sinners. We're not just sinners who suffer the sins of others in our life, and we're not just sinners who inflict suffering on others. But in very real and true terms, because of the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ, those who have been called out by God, who are part of the people of God, who have tasted the grace and the mercy of God, rightly should be calling one another saints. Because the holiness of Jesus has been imputed to us. And when God looks at us, he does not see us in our sin but he sees us in the righteousness and the holiness of his son. That's why the apostle Paul can start his letters off to the churches in the New Testament and call those churches, the churches in Corinth, where people are getting drunk at communion, where a guy is sleeping with his mother, where believers in the church are suing each other. He can start a letter off to those people and call them saints. 
Because by virtue of their faith in the person and work of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to them, that is who they are. The problem is they're failing to remember that. They're forgetting it. They've got an amnesia about who they are. They don't remember. God's people are essentially holy. And Peter says they're not just holy, but they're a holy nation. Not only does God make us a new creation, but when he makes us a new creation, he makes us a part of a new people. Peter calls it a a new nation, a new household. And here's the thing, you don't have a choice in that matter. When God makes you new through the person and work of Jesus, you don't have a choice as to whether or not you become a part of God's new people. That's not up to you. You don't check a box on a list and say, no, I don't want to be a part of God's people. I'll take Jesus, I'll take forgiveness, I'll take holiness, I'll take eternity, I'll take the Holy Spirit now, but I don't want to be a part of God's people. You don't get that option. When he makes you holy, he makes you a part of a holy people, a holy nation. Becoming a follower of Christ means you become a part of his church. This again is where the idea of there being one church, redeemed by Jesus Christ throughout all places and times comes into play. This is where the idea, the universality of the church, the Catholic nature of the church comes into play. It doesn't matter what tribe you're from, what language you speak. This gospel makes people of every tribe, tongue, and nation new, and those new people are a part of a new nation. If we had the time, we would read Ephesians 2 and 3, where the Apostle Paul is talking about how Jesus Christ, in his body, broken for our sin, his blood poured out for our sin, And in God's vindication of that by raising him from the dead, the gospel, that message through Jesus Christ has removed the hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile. God himself removed the hostilities between people, between ethnicity and nation. That Jesus Christ is the one man that has made one new people. This is what the creed is talking about. This is what Peter is alluding to when he talks about us being a holy nation. Paul actually says we're no longer foreigners or aliens. He doesn't even use the the nation term, but he speaks in in nationalistic terms. He says because of the gospel and through the person and work of Jesus, we're no longer foreigners or aliens. Foreigners is kind of like being a tourist. You're visiting a land, you're a foreigner. Alien is kind of like being a, 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 a person who has a green card to live in a nation. You can live there and you can work there, but you have no nationalistic rights as being a, a born citizen there. And Paul says, before Jesus, we were foreigners and and aliens, but now we're fellow citizens. Not just citizens, not just those who live there and have rights, but fellow citizens. Every single one of us. And Paul's just pointing to the the unity of the church that that is birthed in the person and work of Jesus. This is who we are. We're a, a holy nation. This is the identity we have as a church. A holy people. Paul goes, I mean, Peter goes on to say that we're not just a holy nation, but we're a royal priesthood. So just as citizens have rights in a nation, rights and privileges that are due theirs because they're citizens, so we too, as members of God's household, as members of his holy nation, have rights and, citizens, have, have rights and privileges. And this is what this royal priesthood kind of gets at. What this means when Peter says that the church, there were all of us, all of us who have been made part of God's people are part of a royal priesthood. It means that every single one of us who have placed our faith in the person and work of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins now has direct access to God. Before that, there were priests, priests who mediated between God and the people, priests who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, priests who went into the holy place on behalf of the people. There was a mediator 
But Jesus has become the great high priest for us. We've preached about this in weeks past. We won't get into it. And when Peter says that we are a royal priesthood, what he is saying is that every single one of us as followers of Christ has rights, has authority. That's the royal part. That every single one of us also has access. That's the priesthood part. Every single one of us has the right to access God and the authority to access God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is our privilege as Christians. This is who we are. We're a holy people. A people with the privilege and the right to approach God on the basis of what his son has done in our place. This is who we are. And the reason the church becomes a take it or leave it issue is because that amnesia sets in and we forget who we are. We forget whose we are, more importantly. We forget what God has done. We forget who we are, that we exist to serve God and every single last one of us, every single last one of us has a role in this. Every single last one of us plays a part Because we're a part of God's people. We belong to him. We exist for him. We are possessed by him. This is our identity. So what does it mean for what we're about and what we do? This is the other part of the why it becomes a take it or leave it issue. We forget who we are so we have no idea what we're about. And when we don't know who we are and what we're about, things become of of little consequence or importance to us. Listen to what Peter says the church is actually about. Said you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now listen, that, so here, here we go, here's why, here's what it's about, what it's for, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a people possessed by God, chosen by God, transformed by God, empowered by God to make much of the excellencies of God. We exist to make much of the one who has called us out of darkness, Peter said, and into this marvelous light. We exist to make much of the one who took away our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. We exist to make much of the one who made a way to bring those of us who were dead in our sin and trespasses and make us alive to the realities of his glory and his beauty. We exist to make much of God. This is what the creed is talking about when it says we believe in an apostolic church. It's not talking about a church that has a direct line of succession from the apostles. It's not talking about the fact that whether or not we can put up a, a genealogy in a tree that could take the leadership of this church back to Peter and to the early apostles. That's not what this means. It means that God's people or the church is about God's message and God's mission. The same message and the same mission that God gave the apostles the apostles passed on to the church that the Holy Spirit has empowered and that the Holy Spirit has preserved through his scriptures. That's what it means. It means we have the same message and we have the same mission as the apostles. And to be a faithfully apostolic church means we must remain true to the Bible's message and remain true to the Bible's mission that Jesus gave his people. God's people, the church, have been commissioned by Jesus himself to carry out the work that he had begun in his life. And then he gave his people, the church, his very spirit to empower them to be the very people he called them to be and to do the very thing that he called them to do. This is what we spent a year talking about when we went through the book of Acts. 
And when we begin to understand not only who we are by virtue of what God has done for us and how God has taken possession of us, we not just understand our identity, but we understand this apostolic nature of the church. The church has a message and it also has a mission. When we begin to understand the purpose of the church as the scriptures have defined it, as Peter has said it, that we exist not for ourselves. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for God. We exist to make much of his excellency. We exist to make much of his grace and his mercy and his power and his sovereignty and his sufficiency that called us out of darkness and into light. We exist to make much of him. And when we get that, who we are and what we're about, it begins to give shape and it begins to animate the way we understand our own very life. We begin to see that being a part of God's people isn't an optional thing. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it issue. God called us to himself, and he made us a part of his people. We've been saved and redeemed by God, made holy by God, that we would make much of him with our life. This is the purpose of the church. When we begin to get who we are and what we're about, we should begin to see the evidences of joy and confidence beginning to well up in our lives. We should be a people. The church should be a people full of joy. Of all people in this world that should be full of joy, it should be the church. Because of all people who should understand who they are apart from God and what hope they have in this world apart from the person and work of his son, Jesus, of all people who recognize the realities of the sin in their own heart and the sin in this world, but who have tasted of the grace and mercy of God, who have a hope not only for the future, but for this life now. Of all people who understand that it should be the church, and of all people who in all times and places and circumstances should be full of joy, who should understand the things they face in this life in a right perspective, it should be the church. When we understand who we are and what we're about, we should be a people full of joy and full of confidence. Because we realize that the people that we've been called to be and what we've been called to do, God has empowered us by his own spirit to do and to be. It can't fail. There's nothing to fear. Jesus told his disciples. He gave the great commission. You've been around church, you know it. Make disciples of all nations. Go into all the world. Teach them everything that I've commanded you. There's no fear. Why? I promise I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Not only am I going to be with you, you find out in Acts, I'm going to be in you. I am going to empower you by the very spirit that raised me from the dead. Joy, confidence. If there's anything that should mark God's people when we begin to understand who we are, And what we're about, it should be joy and confidence. Where joy and confidence are lacking, where God's people are not marked by joy and they're not marked by confidence, amnesia has begun to set in. There is a forgetfulness about who we are and what we're about. You've forgotten ultimately whose you are. And because of that, we're susceptible to deception And we lack joy, and we lack confidence. 
And God's remedy for that deception, God's remedy for that amnesia, is the church. It's the church. We'll end it this way. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Let me read it to you. He's talking to the church. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil or unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So there is this possibility and this temptation that our heart can begin to fall away from God. A faith and a sincere confidence in who God is and what he's done can begin to creep into our our hearts and our lives. And the writer says, but exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, the most insidious part of sin is that it's deceitful. It promises you something it can't deliver. And your heart begins to want what it promises. And in the deceitfulness of sin, you begin to believe that what it's actually promising can actually come to pass. And as you forget whose you are and what that means, and you begin to trust in the deceitfulness of sin, your heart begins to fall away from a sincere and pure trust in God. And his remedy for avoiding that hardness of heart? It's you and I. It's the church. It's daily encouraging one another, reminding one another whose we are, who we are, and what we're about. It's daily reminding one another of the truths of the gospel. Yes, you sin. Yes, you suffer. Yes, you inflict suffering on others, but you, because of virtue of the person and work in Jesus Christ, are saints. You need to remember that you've been called by God, set apart by God, to make much of God. And we encourage one another while still today that we might not be deceived by sin. I mean, his remedy for this amnesia that sets in, this deceitfulness, is is the church. He's going to keep going. Hebrews 10. Uh, This is one of my favorites. You begin to see not only the holy nation, the royal priesthood, you begin to see all of this played out right here. Hebrews 10. It says this, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... So we have confidence to go to God because of the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to have access to God because of Jesus Christ. We don't need a mediator any longer. We have Jesus. He has been the final priest and sacrifice for us. Since you have confidence in that, since you have confidence by this new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he is the great high priest of which each one of us are royal priests. Let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, confidence. Draw near to God, confidence, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, forgiven and cleansed, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope to the truthfulness of who we are because of who he is and what he has done. Let us hold fast to that without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider now how to stir one another up to love and good works. What's the remedy? What's the method? What's the means for this? Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God's remedy for the amnesia that slowly sets in, that slowly pulls our hearts and our confidence away from who we are and whose we are and what we're about. It's the church. 
It's you and I encouraging one another. It's you and I gathering together as we do every single week to hear the truthfulness of God's word proclaimed that the spirit of God might work through the truth of his scriptures to make our hearts alive, to encourage us, to exhort us, to correct us, to remind us of the confidence and the sincere faith that we have. It's you and I not neglecting what God does when we gather together. It's you and I not neglecting gathering together outside of this place, encouraging one another. That's why there's 15 guys back there learning how to lead us in our communities that scatter throughout the city. Because when we gather, we need one another. We need one another to encourage one another. To help one another remember who we are. What it is we believe. What difference that makes. Without one another and without the church, amnesia sets in. Deception becomes apparent. Our confidence gets eroded. Our joy gets lost. We need one another. And what that means for me, and I love this, as we gather together, we gather together on Sunday morning to make much of a God who has called us out of darkness and into light. We come with confident expectation to hear about who he is and what he's done. We come as a people full of joy and confidence to make much of who he is with our mouths and with song. I can't sing a lick. It's laughable. But I love to come and sing. I love to come and sing because I'm wired by God to make much of who he is. I don't care how we do it. Honestly, I don't. We have conversations all the time, don't we? When the the confidence and the joy gets eroded, when we forget whose we are and what we're for, we can make the times that we gather about what we want and what we think we need. And arguments and things come about in God's people that, ridiculous. I don't care if we sing and it's acapella, if it's hip-hop, if it's gospel, if it's country. I don't care. I can't sing anyway. It actually, something has happened in my heart. I come together and a song gets played and I don't know the song or I can't sing with it. I say, thank God, teach me a new way to sing. Teach me a new way to make much of who you are. It's that simple. We've talked about it all the time. Rick, we never sing these. You never sang these songs at Howard, did you? Yeah, these arrangements weren't popular at Howard. The whole point is to make much of who God is. And every week we come to make much of who he is. And as we do that and we don't neglect the gathering of the saints, not just here but out there, when we see whose we are and who we are and what we're for, and we commit ourselves to the encouraging of one another and the reminding of one another, We begin to be the people of God on the mission of God. Here's the thing. The the church is is central to God's mission. The church is central to God's purpose. The question that you've got to ask yourself and we've got to wrestle with then is, is it central to you? Is it central to your life? Let me pray for us as we wrap up. Lord, I thank you that Jesus is alive That the Holy Spirit that you have been poured out, that you love us because, Father, you are a God of grace and mercy. Thank you that ultimately our hope is not in ourselves, but that our hope is in you. I thank you, Lord, that you're gonna make us better pastors. You're gonna gonna make us a better and more mature church. Father, I thank you because you're gonna make those who are not followers of your son, Jesus, you're gonna make them followers of Jesus. And you're gonna make those of us who are more mature and more complete. So this morning we come, we celebrate you, we thank you. You are good, you are alive, and you are God, and and that makes us glad. 
that makes us glad. Amen.